Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from The Cardiff Giant Affair, written by Clarence Buddington Kelland. The Cardiff Giant Affair is set in 1869 Syracuse and features a happy melange of medicine shows, con games, brawling canallers, high society, and murder, with two highly spirited women and incidental glimpses of P.T. Barnum. All this is interwoven with the splendid true story of the Cardiff Giant hoax. The two plots, fictional and real, illuminate each other and the author's thesis that folks just naturally crave to be gulled. First came the discovery of a petrified lifelike giant, complete with skin pores and reproductive anatomy, buried on a farm in nearby Cardiff, New York. Lossie, always fascinated by the new and out of the ordinary, persuaded Orrin to drive her there in his family carriage the very day the giant was uncovered. The second event was the arrival of Orrin and Lossie's new neighbor, the mysterious and glamorous Madame Sissy Janeway, who moved in directly across the street. Almost at once they began to notice strange comings and goings around Madame Janeway's house at night. As for Madame Janeway, she quickly became the subject of gossip around town. She seemed to have admission to the highest levels of society, yet it was whispered she was a protégé of multimillionaire Wall Street financier Daniel Drew. She lived the life of a woman of utmost refinement and unlimited means, yet to Orrin and Lossie's consternation, her butler looked and talked like a stevedore and treated her like his servant. Third was the murdered man whose body Orrin discovered in the family stable by their carriage. The man had been strangled by someone very strong, and no one in Syracuse would admit to ever having seen him before. As the discoverer of the body, Orrin became the chief suspect, and he and Lossie knew they would have to get to the bottom of it all to clear his name. Orrin knew there was a meaningful connection between all three events, but what was it? And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from the Cardiff Giant Affair. Chapter 1 Lossie and I sat under the big elm between our twin houses on James Street. It seems not to have been uncommon in the days when our homes were erected for brothers or close friends to build identical homes side by side, and this is what our fathers had done. They were close friends and partners, and if a stranger asked their business, they would reply that they were salt boilers, which indeed they were, for the production of salt was perhaps the principal industry of Syracuse in the 60s. Our homes were of red brick, square, and each was topped by a cupola. Fine doorways with fanlights stood behind Doric columns, and on each door was a silver plate bearing the name of the owner. On our door, the name was Applegate, and on Lossie's door, the name was Fox. Across the street, in a spacious yard, stood a fine Corinthian-style house, but newly tenanted after a year of vacancy, and by a mysterious and beautiful lady, arrived suddenly out of the nowhere to take residence after a flurry of renovation, painting, and furnishing. Even the iron-colored boy at the hitching block was shining in freshly painted red coat and white trousers and black boots. This newest addition to our population created high curiosity and was the occasion of much whispering and speculation. That she was beautiful and stately could be observed by all. 
that she was wealthy was evidenced by her retinue and by the extremely handsome team of chestnut horses with coachmen to drive them, which inhabited the stables. The coachman was liveried, as was the butler, at whom Lossie and I gazed with some awe. Janeway was her name. It was accepted quickly that she was to be spoken of as Madame Sissy Janeway, though just how this came to be so was a mystery to us who were wholly unacquainted with that art which many years later came to be known as public relations. At any rate, even before we saw the lady, we had somehow been instructed that her name was Madame Sissy Janeway. For some days after her arrival, she was invisible, which was taken to be a sign of proper modesty and decorum. Then, each morning at ten, her open carriage drove around from the stables, and Madame Janeway, dainty parasol in hand, tripped down the steps to the block and stepped into her equipage. She was of medium height, but seemed taller. She was possessed of a wonderful, lithe figure which she handled with consummate grace. Her little bonnet perched upon a coif of bronze hair. Her face was beautiful, almost Grecian, strikingly aristocratic and dignified. Her eyes were large and brown and very, very brilliant. Somehow one was impressed by the fact that her aristocracy was embellished by high intelligence. But also there was something sweet and a little sad about her expression, and when she smiled one's heart went out to her. The envious guessed that she was in her later thirties. The unbiased opined that she might be in her closing twenties. The fact, not known until later days, was that she was forty-one. Lossie had returned but a week before from her travels in Europe, and to my somewhat bewildered discomfort I found her not the tomboyish chum who had sailed away in June. Lossie was four years younger than I, being at that time in her nineteenth year. Whatever of Hoyden there had been when she went away had been erased by contact with the culture of the old world, and I was conscious of a restraint between us that never had been there before. Never, from that first day when I had been taken in to see her in her cradle, had we been anything but playmates. She the more daring and adventurous. But this evening she was not a playmate. She was a lady. No longer was she a creature with scrawny legs and flying hair and smudged cheeks. She did not even look the same, and I, after studying the matter carefully, was dismayed to see that she was on the verge of becoming a beautiful woman. I wondered, hopefully, if this new, dignified, standoffish manner of hers was real, or if it was something she had observed in foreign society and was practicing on me for mischief. There she is, Lossie said suddenly, and I looked across the street to see Madame Janeway descend the front steps and walk across the front of the house to a garden where late flowers blossomed. She walked slowly, swaying a little as she walked, not looking about her and unaware that curious eyes might be studying her. She looks, I said, like a queen, Lossie sniffed. She's giving us a chance to stare at her, she said. That, I said, with that impoliteness which is used by children who are intimate, is silly. She, snapped Lossie, is making a parade. You're jealous, I said. You're a stupid boy. When you get to be a man, you'll be more stupid. I am a man, I retorted. I'm graduated from Cornell College, and I'm admitted to the bar. She looked at me and tittered. I felt my cheeks flushing. Then she frowned. Do you think she is beautiful? Lossie asked, narrowing her eyes at me. Very handsome, I said shortly. Am I beautiful? She demanded. Fiddlesticks, I told her. You're just Lossie. Stupid, she said with a shrug. 
and then after a little pause while she scrutinized the lady across the street. She's a hussy. Little girls, I said loftily, mustn't be jealous. It makes them look silly. I don't feel like quarreling with you this evening, she said. I suppose our mothers will be calling. They won't be able to restrain their curiosity. Oh, oh, there goes Banker Watts. It was so. Banker Watts, wearing a tall beaver hat, was indeed turning up the walk toward Madame Janeway's door. She became aware of him and turned with a graceful gesture to greet him. She led the way up the steps, and they disappeared inside the house. Apparently, Lossie dismissed our new neighbor from her thoughts. Let's start early tomorrow morning, she said. Let's start early tomorrow morning, she said, with something of her old eagerness. Did your father say you could have the horses? Yes, I told her. You were going to put up a lunch? We were going to the Onondaga Indian Reservation Fair, which we had attended every October since we were children. It was a great occasion. To be reached by going out the Cherry Valley Turnpike on the way to Lafayette Village, or to Cardiff if you turned to the right. Everybody went and wandered about all day among the booths, and bought Indian baskets and had a wonderful, tiresome time. My mother called from our front porch. Dinner's ready, Orin. And I went in. Only mother, father, and I sat at table. Father asked the blessing, and hardly had his amen been spoken when mother said in her brisk way, Banker Watts just went in across the way. Probably to supper. Probably business, father said. I thought, mother said, that when people had business with bankers, they went to the bank. Mrs. Janeway, he commenced, but mother interrupted. Madam Janeway, she corrected. Father grinned at her sardonically. Madam Janeway is a new and important customer, he said. Wealthy, I understand, and highly connected. It would be good business to pamper her some. Nellie and I are going to call, Mother said. Nellie was Lossie's mother. I wouldn't rush things, Father warned. Who, Mother demanded, are these important connections? I had lunch with Watts today, and her name came up. I warrant it did, Mother said ironically. He didn't mention names, Father went on, but you could tell he was impressed, somebody pretty high up. Mother sniffed in a way she had. Probably the natural daughter of an earl, she said. Why the mystery? If she's a member of some family like the Vanderbilts or the Goulds or Daniel Drews, why not come right out with it? It was Watts who was reticent, Father explained, acting like a banker. Mother changed the subject abruptly. It was a way she had. Her mind darted about, sometimes bewilderingly. You and Lossie are going to the Indian fair, she asked. Yes, Mother. Foreign travel, Mother said, did Lossie good. She's improved. It made her snippy, I complained. It'll wear off, Father said carelessly. I don't have to tell you to take good care of the horses. No, sir, I answered. When I was a boy, he told me, my father didn't own a team worth a thousand dollars. Now Silas, mother warned, as she did every time father started in to tell us how he was a self-made man. There was no formality about our supper. The roast was on a platter in front of father. The mashed potatoes were at his left. He sliced the meat and filled plates bountifully, dipping gravy on the potatoes and adding portions of mashed turnip. Mother served the peas and side dishes. We ate with appetite and without conversation. It was not until after the apple pie that father sighed and pushed back his chair. Mother arose and went into the kitchen. Father went to his study, and I was at loose ends. 
As I passed Father's study door, I saw him tear the leaf from a large calendar over his desk and noted that tomorrow's date would be Saturday, October 16th, in the year 1869. We breakfasted at six o'clock because Father must be out at his salt boiling plant at seven. Our barn man had the team hitched and ready well before eight, and I called impatiently from the driver's seat to Lossie, who came out presently, followed by the cook carrying a basket of lunch. Lossie was irritated. You don't hoot and holler for a lady to come out, she said tartly. Next time, I retorted, I'll roll out a red carpet and hold a parasol over your head. She scrambled between the wheels and settled herself beside me. You are to stop treating me as if I were another boy, she said seriously. I am a young lady. Fiddlesticks, I told her. Even if you've been to Europe and come home with your nose in the air, you're still lossy, so don't put on airs with me. I clucked to the horses and swung them into the street. Lossie sulked for a little while, but as we reached the turnpike and I allowed the horses to trot briskly, her uppishness disappeared and her eyes glowed with eagerness and anticipation. She forgot that she was a fashionable young lady and became the Lossie of old. It was not quite ten o'clock when we reached the entrance to the Indian fair, but we could not turn in because the road was blocked by an excited crowd toward which people were running from all directions. In the middle of it stood a chubby man, muddy to the knees, who shouted and waved his hands and pranced. I recognized him as one Gideon Emmons, who earned a living by doing odd jobs. I tell you all, it's God's truth. Me and Henry Nichols, we dug it up. His voice broke to a sort of squeal. It's a marvel of the world. It's a giant, more than 40 feet long, all petrified and turned to stone. A great monster of a giant, laying stretched out in his grave. It's got arms and legs and a face and all that. Me and Henry... We dug down to it whilst we was digging a well for Stubby Newell. Down back of the barn on his Cardiff farm? It's a miracle. That's what it is, and nothing like it's ever been seen in this world. Is he drunk? Lossie asked, gripping my arm. Don't look it, I said. Could be some sort of caper. So I come a-running, leaving Hank to guard it. If it's petrified, called a penetrating nasal voice, it wouldn't run off, not to speak of. I recognized old David Hannum banker, and one of the slickest horse traders in the country. Let's go see, Lossie said eagerly, tugging at my sleeve. The same idea struck the mob, and it streamed off down the road, more than a hundred of them at first, and then as the news spread, scores of others, as soon as they could hitch their rigs and get in motion. We turned down the road into the valley toward Cardiff, which was less than a hamlet. It really was the name of a place rather than a place. Two miles down this road, we turned into the lovely, wooded valley brilliant with crisp sunshine. Off to the west reared the green slope of Bear Mountain, and to eastward lifted the dark eminence of Pompeii. Light clouds above threw their moving shadows down upon the mountain slope, and somehow with suddenness, the great valley seemed somber and mysterious and portentous. Lossie must have felt it because her fingers again gripped my arm and clung to it. It was a rough road, Probably not passable at all after a rain, but we reached Stubby Newell's farmhouse without mishap. We were among the first to arrive and to be confronted by bearded Henry Nichols, important but obviously odd. Keep back. Keep back and be careful. He bellowed, don't cave her in. But the increasing crowd paid no attention. It trampled its way to a low spot behind the barn, a low damp spot, and struggled for position at the front. Land of Goshen, a subdued voice exclaimed. Darned if it ain't. Darned if it ain't what? Demanded a voice from the rear. A great tarnation giant, said the first voice. 
bigger in life and twice as natural. All twisted like he up and died of a bellyache. I managed to force a way through for Lossie. The crowd knew our father, so we were given some consideration. We stood at the crumbling brink of a pit some three feet deep, and there under our eyes was indeed a giant. Not forty feet tall, as Gideon Emmons had said, but maybe a dozen feet in length. It lay upon its back and stared up at the sky out of sightless eyes. To me, in that moment, it seemed a noble, dignified face that I looked upon. Lossie clung to my arm and her lips were parted and her eyes wide. Pinch me, Oren, she whispered. This can't be so. I must be dreaming. Careless of my Sunday go-to-meeting suit of clothes, I leaped down into the excavation to examine the find more closely. It was almost entirely uncovered, but soft earth clung to it and required to be removed. I called for a broom and in a moment one was passed down to me. I used it to clean the surface of the huge figure and disclosed the outer surface. Undoubtedly it was of stone, but I could detect no marks of a chisel. I bent closer and was able to see that which startled me mightily, for the entire body was covered, as the skin of a human being is covered, with pores. It was unthinkable. It was incredible. But this prima facie evidence was an indication that this was no man-wrought statue, but the body of a petrified giant. What do you make it out to be, Orin? asked the naval voice of David Hannum. I wouldn't know to say, sir, I answered. But whatever it is, it's a marvel. Could it have been alive? Lossie asked as hands helped me to scramble out of the hole. If ever it was alive, I told her. It died in agony. See how the body is distorted as though with pain? The herd of humans pressing about the site of Newell's well was still. Hushed with a sort of superstitious awe. It was a day... Simple, primitive, when the casual possession of miracles such as were to come with the age of invention had not dulled the capacity of the human mind for astonishment. People, it seemed, preferred credulity to skepticism. Before we go messing around, said a warning voice, we better fetch a parson. Or, Lossie's voice was suspiciously serious, the coroner. Lossie, I rebuked. Isn't it the law? She asked with an innocent face. If it's a man's body, there'll have to be an inquest. This was levity of which I could not approve. I frowned at her, but she was in no wise disconcerted. There had been times in the past, the more recent past, when Lossie had made me uncomfortable. Times when I could not tell whether she was in earnest or joking. She would ask the most absurd questions with a straight face or make the most outrageous suggestions with childish naivety. At times I was afraid she knew many things that it was not decorous for a girl to know, and at times she displayed a sort of innocent irreverence for serious matters that was upsetting. I know that I have a tendency to be over-serious-minded, a matter of which she was inclined to take advantage. By this time the Indian fair must have been deserted, even by the Onondagas themselves. Everyone had scampered to witness this new marvel, and among the neck craners were a couple of parsons from neighboring towns. I did not know their names, Way was made for these authorities on the mysterious and unknown to approach the excavation, and there stood the two gentlemen of the cloth, staring down at the giant with expressionless faces. There came a little sound from Lossie, which I was afraid was a titter. Which one'll win? she whispered. To me it was apparent that neither preacher was eager to speak first. Each waited cautiously for the other to take the risk of hazarding an opinion. The pause became painful until at last one minister spoke ponderously. 
noncommittally. God, he said solemnly, moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. Lossie, distressingly irreverent, stood on tiptoe to reach my ear. That, she said, is what I call taking a firm and daring stand. Hush, I said uneasily, fearing she might be overheard. The other minister felt clearly that he must not be outdone in this emergency by his brother. He was more specific, and uttered words which were to be quoted far and wide in the future by fundamentalists. There were, he said pontifically, giants in those days. Which days, Lossie whispered. I think, said the first minister, after communion with himself, that we should descend into the sepulchre and make closer examination. So the two reverend gentlemen scrambled into the pit and solemnly bent over the huge, distorted figure. From top to toe they examined it, not with the eyes of science, but with the authority of men who dealt with the mysteries of life, while the crowd waited with bated breath for their pronouncement. They stood erect, facing each other, and conferred in inaudible tones. "'Well, preachers,' demanded an impatient voice, "'what conclusion have you come to, Hey." Again, all present recognized that tinder dry voice as belonging to David Hannum, banker and horse-swapper. The pastor scrambled out of the pit. Speak up, insisted Hannum. Is the critter fish, flesh, or good red heron? Good people, said one. We have examined the, uh, body in a spirit of humility and prayerfulness. We have consulted together and have reached accord. There are visible to the naked eye pores such as are present in the human skin. The course of veins and arteries can be traced. The posture indicates uh, that the individual was capable of suffering agony. It is, therefore, our considered opinion uh, that in this grave, my fellow citizens, lies the veritable petrified, um, fossilized body of a giant who roamed this earth in biblical days. A profound silence arose. Authority had spoken. There was a commotion in the fringe of the crowd, and a pushing and jostling. An irate voice shouted, Hey, what's going on here, anyhow? What fur be ye trampling my property like a herd of wild hogs? It was the owner of the farm, Stubby Newell. Way was made for him to advance to the center, while voices shouted explanations for the trespass. Your well digger struck a stone, man. It's a petrified giant out of the Bible. The preacher says so. Hush your noise, growled Stubby, whilst I see for myself. He knelt in the earth at the edge of the pit and peered downward. Presently, he turned a dumbfounded face. Dog my cats, he exclaimed in an odd voice. Where in Tucket did this here come from? Brother Newell, said one of the ministers, only the Almighty knows whence it came. It has been interred here for countless centuries. Ah, shucks, Newell said. Some dumb fool's playing off a joke. Who'd be able to play such a rich joke as this, asked a neighbor. Weighs tons. Stands to reason tain't no trick, Stubby. It's an honest-to-heaven giant turned to stone. Like Lot's wife. Salt, said Lossie aloud. Stubby's unshaven chin was on his breast as he considered this thing that had befallen him. Perhaps it was good fortune, and he needed a bit of luck. All day he had been in Syracuse pleading with adamant bankers for a loan, with no success. He raised his head, and his small, closely set shrewd eyes were gleaming. He had reached a conclusion. 
Well, he said firmly, whatever it is, it was dug up on my land, so it's mine. Nobody gainsays that, Stubby. Then, he said peremptorily, all you folks is trespassing. So skedaddle. The whole passel of you clear out, he waggled a grimy hand at the throng. From now on, he announced, anybody that looks at this here wonder of the world pays money for the privilege. He turned and bowed to the two ministers. Clergyman half price, he conceded. Now get out, all you. Growling and grumbling, the crowd withdrew. It was a law-abiding people, with a profound respect for the rights of property and a wholesome apprehension of anyone who might have the law on them. Each man guarded his own line fences jealously. This was Stewie Newell's farm. Owned in fee simple, and the very Constitution of the United States backed him up when he ordered them off. Lossie and I were among the last to go, because we would have to extricate our horses and buggy. So we watched Stubby as he carried boards from a weathered pile behind his barn and covered the pit with them, hiding from sight that object within which was to become a national commotion under the name and title of the Cardiff Giant. The question of whether the thing was human, or an ancient work of art, or a hoax, was to be debated from Maine to California. It was mooted by doctors of divinity, by scientists, by physicians of the eminence of Oliver Wendell Holmes, by college presidents and professors. It was more than a seven days wonder. It became the subject of a nation-shaking debate in which mysticism, religious awe, esoteric reasonings, and ordinary human credulity struggled with logic and science in titanic battle. Lossie and I drove the few miles to Lafayette and turned down the turnpike toward Syracuse. By this time, the Indian fair was in full swing again, and we drove into the grounds, tied the team, and watered it and baited it. Then we sought a shady spot and ate our own lunch. Everywhere the talk was of the find on Stubby Newell's farm. Arguments ran high and noisy, but majority opinion clearly was on the side of petrification of a once-living giant. Mr. Hannum, who would have seemed naked without his horseman's cap, stopped to speak to Lossie. Folks, he said in his nasal voice, air so constituted, it's easier to bamboozle him than to get him to credit a fact. Then, sir, I asked, do you think the giant is some kind of hoax? Didn't say so. Didn't say so, he replied sharply. More money it and if there's a brisk argument. Money, I exclaimed. I'd rather own it than have shares in Mr. Vanderbilt's railroad, he said, and passed on his way. It was mid-October and evening came early. We enjoyed the familiar sights of the fair, and I bought Lossie an armful of baskets and other things of Indian manufacture. It was nearly five o'clock when we climbed into the buggy and headed for home. Lossie was thoughtful. If, she said presently, that thing is a... a counterfeit and Stubby Newell didn't think it up. Why do you say that? I asked. He's not smart enough, and he couldn't afford it. It would cost a lot of money. All the more reason, I argued, for thinking it genuine. Then she really shocked me. I guess I'm agnostic, she said, looking straight in front of her and wearing an expression of bland innocence. Lossy fox, I exclaimed. And then because I did not know exactly what to say, I said... Robert Ingersoll is an agnostic. He, she said provocatively, is a very smart man. He corrupts people, I said, going around making fun of the Bible. 
I looked him up in the dictionary, Lossie said. I mean, I looked up agnostic. I just bet for all your college, you don't know what it means. It means, I said firmly, a man who doesn't believe in God. She shook her head. It's a new word, she said, and it was coined by a scientist named Huxley. And what it really means is suspending the judgment on all matters where there isn't any proof of their truth. Mr. Ingersoll doesn't say he doesn't believe in God. He just says there isn't any proof of him. So, about this stone giant, I'm an agnostic. She grinned impishly at me. And that, she said, isn't all I'm agnostic about. What else? I asked her. That hussy across the street from us, she said. That Madam Sissy Janeway. I growled at her. You'll get into trouble saying you're an agnostic, I warned. And it was very true. If such a word got around about her, it would be pretty serious. Almost as serious as if somebody were to start a scandal that she was a loose woman. She giggled. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from The Cardiff Giant Affair. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.